Hello and welcome to this ATS podcast. Today we're going to be covering systematic reviews in the context of pulmonary rehabilitation. My name's Dr. Alex Jenkins and I'm a postdoctoral fellow from McGill University in Canada. I'm part of the ATS Evidence Synthesis Methodology Working Group. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Arwal Jones, who's a research fellow from Monash University and who is also part of the Thoracic Society of Australia and New Zealand Evidence-Based Medicine and Practice Special Interest Group, as well as the ERS Clinical Practice Guideline Methodology Network. So to start off this podcast, we're just going to kind of summarize the purpose of systematic reviews. So when thinking about undertaking a systematic review, we want to be clear with what our question is and why, why we want to do this. So the purpose is to basically pull the evidence um, from several trials, whether that be randomized control trials, non-randomized trials, observational or cohort. It depends on the design of the review and what your question is. And we're looking to pull them to give an overall estimate of effect of the literature um, within the area you're interested in. So this is a way of trying to effectively power up your sample size from randomized control trials to give an overview of the field in this area. So Arwal's now going to quickly explain um, about the process of designing a systematic review. Thanks, Alex. Certainly from the point of systematic reviews, a precondition of those really is that it's based on a well-formulated question. And of course, there are frameworks out there which can help you frame that research question in a way which then will, you know, provide a a clinical meaningful question for you to answer as part of the review process. And a common one, certainly in the context of randomized control trials, is what we'd call a PICO framework, um, where the P um, stands for population, I stands for intervention, C would stand for comparison, and O would stand for outcomes. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only framework which is relevant to studies of pulmonary rehabilitation. If you've, let's say, got a research question which is more around qualitative research, you may well find that there's other uh, frameworks that are out there, such as the SPIDER framework, which is more relevant for such a research question. But certainly from any aspect of systematic reviews, to be able to, let's say, define your methods for the review itself, all of those are going to be informed by a a well-designed research question, which, of course, you can use these frameworks for. One of the important things with um, once you're designing your question is once you've got to that stage where you've developed what your research question is and what the components are um, and you've developed the protocol, it's important to actually go ahead and look at the registration process. So this is sometimes an area that can be missed with systematic reviews and it's very critically important for the reader to be able to have access to a pre-specified protocol. Now the importance of this is to be transparent so that authors or people conducting systematic reviews are not led by the data per se. So beforehand, for example, in the context of pulmonary rehabilitation, if we have designed a question We know that exercise programs um, can be very in terms of duration, frequency, and these are very important factors. So when designing your systematic review, you could pre-specify that actually that's an area we want to account for in our analysis. So that allows you to do sensitivity or subgroup analysis afterwards. However, 
What can happen is if we haven't got these this registration, we can't see what the original plan was. And when you get familiar with the data, you can start almost cherry picking studies um, for removal from analysis without valid reason. So it's really just having the accountability with that registration process. Now, one of the registration platforms um, that's mainly used is the Prospero, which is can easily be found online. Um, and that's a good database for registering your protocols for reviews. Now, we appreciate that systematic reviews can change. As with any study, it often can deviate from the protocol. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. It's more a case of if you deviate from your protocol, it's important that you actually state that this has happened in any subsequent manuscript and then justify your reasons for deviating from it so that the person reading it can understand why such decisions have been made. Yeah, Alex, I think this is uh, absolutely critical when it comes to a, a systematic review. I say that as, as somebody who has been an author on systematic reviews, but also somebody who has been asked to be a peer reviewer for many systematic reviews. It just has to be completely transparent what methods are going to be used for your systematic review. And I would really encourage anybody who is going to conduct a systematic review for the first time or perhaps your next one is don't underestimate, let's say, the time it takes to develop a, a protocol. And I would say that the time that you take to establish your protocol and outline those and pre-specify those ahead of time will really save you time later on. There's so many aspects of your systematic review that need to be well thought out. And, and this is, I think, a reason why there's often a recommendation where as well as having, a, let's say, a topical ex expert for your research question, you also have somebody who has methodology expertise within your review team, because there will be, let's say, aspects of your smart review, which will need to be thought out. And that comes whether it's data analysis, the choice of relevant study designs, all of these things are better to be discussed up front, as opposed to, let's say, difficulties and dilemmas that you reach later on in the review process. And like you say, Alex, I think it's not necessarily, you know, an end to your systematic review or a complete failure if you if you do need to deviate from the protocol later on. But if you do have, let's say, at least core of your methods outlined up front, those, let's say, minor changes that happen potentially because of unforeseen studies or um, aspects of the review uh, evidence, then that's fine. But it's just a case of as long as it's completely clear that your overall uh, methods to your systematic review is clear, that will certainly help you from a, let's say, robustness of your own systematic review, but also as somebody who is potentially reviewing your uh, manuscript ahead of publication. I think another point to add on in relation to the registration phase is that with Prospero in particular, it can take um, a few weeks to, to actually have it published online. That doesn't stop you starting. The, the terms are so long as I believe are, well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's up to the point of data extraction. I think it's fine to not have the protocol registered, but I think once you enter that phase, there needs to be a pre-registered protocol um, which states what you're going to do. But another advantage as well, um, especially if it's your first time doing a review, is that with the protocol registration, 
frustration, it kind of offers a layer of peer review as well, because you will get some feedback from Prospero. I don't know with the pandemic, whether it's as thorough as it used to be, but they they do have kind of standards for publishing protocols. So it's a good chance to get feedback. And we'd always strongly recommend any protocol for a systematic review. You do potentially ask someone in the field to, to peer review it as well before going to protocol registration, because that's a really good way of actually saving yourself time later if you do run into any problems that you may have missed. Yeah, I think certainly during the pandemic, there's been a huge increase in interest in, in doing systematic reviews. To the extent I think Prospero at one stage were saying that they would publish the protocol online without, say, without necessarily looking at it too much in detail. I think in terms of at what stage they now expect it, I think they might have scaled it back even further. And, you know, perhaps you're not having done any aspect of your search yet, as opposed to data extraction. But I, but I think one thing I would also encourage, I guess there's two things that come to mind when it comes to the protocol, one of which is the other thing you can consider, of course, is look to publish the protocol in a peer review journal or other aspects or other freely available registers that, that are out there. The, and of course, if you're going to submit it for, for publication in a peer-reviewed journal, that will then, of course, give you an aspect of being peer-reviewed by somebody else in the field. The second thing I wanted to say also was the advantage of these registers is even before you, let's say, go ahead with the decision that you're going to do the systematic review, it's worthwhile searching these registers to see if there is already an existing systematic review ongoing or one that has been completed. Um, the reason being, of course, as with any research study, we don't want to duplicate effort. Um, so, of course, it's always worthwhile to have a look at these registers to see if somebody else is already doing the work that you intend on doing. Of course, the, once you've got a, a fully defined protocol and it's, and, it's, and it's out there publicly available, one of the next phases of your systematic review will be to conduct your um, search, which is kind of the first um, stage of your systematic review after developing your protocol. Now, I think my main encouragement and advice would be when it comes to a systematic review, when it comes to the search, is that you will have consulted a specialist librarian within your field at the stage of your protocol development. Again, coming back to the, the, the important time taken at the protocol stage, another key stage at the protocol, or at least the component will be done at that time, is to develop your search strategy. Now, if you can develop your search strategy in consult consultation with a librarian, it will completely simplify the process for you, or at least often avoid or overcome a lot of the challenges that you will face, particularly if it's your first um, systematic review. And there's, there's two reasons for this, from my perspective at least, is the librarian will often know which sources or which databases are best to kind of search for your particular research question. But they will also know the best way to search those particular databases from the point of view of the search terms to be used, and also the, perhaps the filters and the, and the certain settings that you might need to be able to search those databases effectively. As well as developing your um, search strategy, one key aspect of your systematic review, which often, let's say, is a key difference in comparison to other forms of evidence synthesis, is that as well as searching, let's say, bibliographic databases, and you might have heard of these before, such as Medline, Embase, um, Sinal, and so on, is that we search for non-published um, evidence, or let's say grey literature, as well as trial registers. And the reason for this is, of course, is that what we're trying to do with a systematic review is to collate all of the available evidence. 
which is both published and unpublished. So when it comes to a trial register, for example, you may well come across searching those registers, a trial which fits your eligibility criteria for your systematic review, which is not yet completed, or perhaps is completed and not yet published. So of course, if this uh, you come across this during the part of your systematic review, then this is something, of course, you can contact the authors to see at what stage will the results be available. And again, it will allow you to make sure that by the time you go to publish your systematic review, your evidence is as up-to-date as possible for your research question. Yeah, and I think from my standpoint, I've been involved in some reviews in the past where, well, a couple where librarians haven't been consulted at the search strategy stage. And most academic institutions, in particular from my experience, do have librarians on hand who are happy to facilitate helping design the search strategies and identifying the databases. I I'd personally strongly recommend using them because the reviews where I've been involved with, I've been looking through doing some forwards and backwards citation tracking, which is effectively looking at the reference lists of the studies that you've included to see if there's any potential studies that you've missed. And there have been studies that have been missed and kind of gone back to a librarian or introduced a librarian at that stage and they've ident identified faults in the search strategy for why these studies aren't identified so i think this kind of reiterates your point Arwell, is do the the heavy preparation up front if it takes an extra one month two months at the protocol stage you will save that in terms of when you actually start running the review make sure that everything is is in place you've had your protocol reviewed registered and you've consulted a librarian about the searches i think that's that's critically important otherwise you're going to end up having to rerun your search strategy again so in terms of the Next stage, or actually conducting, once you've conducted the searches, you've got all your results, you have to start looking at screening. So we do this in, in layers. So the first layer is title and abstract screening. Some do title and abstract separately. Some do them together. Um, I think that comes down to personal preference. Then the next stage will be full text screening. If you can't eliminate studies based on title and abstract, I, I always tend to be a lot more conservative. So if I'm unsure from that or I have any doubts, have a look at the full text. And then from there, once you've screened the full text, you can look at then knowing what studies are included that fall in line with your PICO components. So some kind of software that's become available over recent years um, actually helps with this screening stage. So software such as Rayan, um, R-A-Y-Y-A-N is available and Covidence as well. So they're very good screening databases that I've I've only recently in the past two to three years um, become familiar with. And they're, they're great software for inputting your, your searches from from EndNote or other referencing software, and you can do all of the screening steps through the software and it will produce your, your diagrams for, uh, for your review for you. So it's really nice, clean and easy and a controlled way to do it, as opposed to kind of doing it itself where it probably introduces that element where there could be human error in your Prisma diagrams. So I'd strongly recommend potentially looking at software. I think Covidence you have to have a subscription for, but I know uh, Rayan's free and available to use. Yes, certainly with, I guess, these software that have come out, it certainly has eased the process of, of, of screening 
I've certainly done reviews with and without the software. Perhaps more recently is kind of adopted this software because of, I guess, the support they provide in in the record keeping, if you like, of your decisions across the systematic review. Because that's the the two key aspects when it comes to this stage of systematic review is is one that you have two reviewers independently. Uh, making decisions on whether they include a title or title and abstract, or let's say whether they exclude them. And, and it's the same for, for the full text reviews that those who are kept in or those who are excluded, there is a record of those kept all the way through. And the, the software will allow you to kind of keep record of these as you go through, as opposed to your own kind of manual tally of, of, of what you've kept in and what you've kept, kept out. I probably see it from my perspective that you've got some essentials and some desirables. So certainly from a essential point of view, you need two people independently to be able to screen all the evidence whether they match your eligibility criteria and that you keep a record of all the way through of your decisions and the desirable then would be I guess to use the software if you have them available um, within your um, setting. So of course the next stage is we've now got a set of studies or let's say records which fit our eligibility criteria for a systematic review and it's a case of um, now extracting the information that we want from the, these included studies into a presentable form that we can include into our systematic review and also synthesize as a part of this systematic review. This data extraction component really comes back to our original protocol in that it's informed by that protocol. What aspects or information do we want from these particular um, studies that we want to present in our systematic review on our end and final manuscript? It's a balance essentially in their extraction of, let's say, having too much information or having too little information from, from these studies. And this is why it comes back to the system review protocol, where you need to think upfront what information is important for us to extract from these studies. And I think largely the data extraction process is informed by your PICO components. So there will be aspects of your PICO framework that will be important to extract from the included studies. So for example, if we're looking at systematic review of pulmonary rehabilitation in COPD patients, we well, may well be extracting characteristics on the COPD patients as part of the data extraction process. We may then also extract information around the characteristics of the intervention. So what was the frequency, the intensity, the duration and the type of exercise perhaps prescribed in the rehabilitation interventions in the systematic review. All of these things, of course, hopefully have been pre-specified by you upfront in your protocol. Because otherwise, the trouble you may run into is that you do tip over uh, the wrong way in terms of that balance I mentioned at the start, and you end up extracting too much information than you need because you've not thought about it up front. And that process, of course, will take longer than you would hoped it to have um, taken in the first place. There will be many things which you perhaps may have not have thought up front when it comes to data extraction. And that often comes down to a level of reporting across your included studies. And by here, I guess I mean the results. So you may have thought, leaning into your systematic review, that all studies will have reported your uh, relevant outcome measures according to this uh, format. Often the case is you see a huge variance across your included studies of how your outcome has been reported. So this is why it's really important as part of your systematic review development that you really have a good sense of how your outcomes that you're going to include in your systematic review are often reported. 
This can then inform how you're going to extract the data and the results from the studies because you've already pre-specified and thought about what ways the, this particular outcome is going to be reported in your included studies. The other issue you might come across is that there is missing data within the re reported studies. Whether that's missing data in terms of participants having dropped out from studies and not all of those being randomized, having data available in your reports, or it could be that there was an outcome reported in, let's say, protocol, the pre-specified um, trial register registration, and that, have, that is not reported in the manuscript. So what you can do here, of course, is contact the authors, but you may get joy and luck in being able to uh, obtain this data from authors, and sometimes you may get no response. There are perhaps, you know, some approaches taken by some where you might have a three-strike rule and think, okay, I'm going to contact this person three times, and if you don't get a response, then I'm going to, I'm going to give up here. But it's, I guess, again, it comes back to your protocol, and you're going to say up front, how often are you going to try and contact authors to be able to obtain missing data? And what will you do when you're not able to obtain um, that missing data? Certainly from my own experience, sadly, what I've noticed is that if I have a PhD student who contacts a study author, we may not get any joy in terms of getting response. But then often if you get a leading academic who, who contacts an author, you may get a response. I guess it's just a sad reality sometimes of, of responses you may get, but that's, you know, try all sources in terms of different people from your team, particularly if they've got links in the field, but also trying to contact more than one author from that particular publication to see if you get a response from one. Because of course, people move on from, from different jobs and institutions. So an email that might be on one particular publication may be out of date by the time you come across their study for your review. I think kind of to, to add to this stage of the systematic review, the, the data extraction, yet again, the importance of the, the protocol is if you're an expert kind of in the area of your systematic review question, you're probably going to know what factors are important to the effect you're looking at. So in terms of covariates, so these are other factors which you might put into your data extraction table is, you know, what factors could actually impact the effect of the intervention. So, you know, in pulmonary rehab, for example, we often encounter studies that actually have synergistic interventions almost, um, if, if that's probably the correct term. So it may not just be pulmonary rehab, it may be exercise training, it may be exercise training education, it may be exercise training education self-efficacy or behaviour change. So these are all kind of factors that you can look at at the data extraction stage. And one thing I found particularly helpful that I've recently started doing in the context of characterising exercise training programmes in the context of pulmonary rehab, and this also really applies to some drug um, trials as well, is using the, um, the FIT principle, um, which is frequent intensity, time and type. So it covers the main components really that you need to characterize a exercise training program. But also what you can do with intensity is put intensity slash dose, and then it becomes applicable to nutritional interventions as well. So there's some ways of characterizing that stage. Now, in terms of the point with regard to missing data, it's a problem. Um, you know, when you extract data from systematic reviews, it can be presented in all different kinds of ways. So you can have pre and post um, means with standard deviations. You can have standard errors, confidence intervals. There's ways to convert confidence intervals, standard errors into standard deviations and vice versa. If you look at the Cochrane handbook for that. 
Um, some studies prevent, uh, present mean differences. So these are all issues that we're not going to go into great detail about because there's ways around it um, in terms of looking at correlation coefficients. And there's probably a hierarchy of how you want to do that. But um, I definitely point you towards the Cochrane Handbook for advice on how to deal with certain elements of, of missing data. So briefly moving on to meta-analysis uh, methods and software. So for randomized control trials, um, the main one is Review Manager, which is the software developed by Cochrane. You can also do meta-regression, which isn't encompassed within that software. So that tends to use R. I haven't had any experience with using it yet, but it's effectively a way that with Revman, if you want to look at lots of subgroups, for example, different kinds of exercise training, whether it be resistance versus aerobic exercise training um, amongst studies, rather than performing several subgroup analysis, it may be more beneficial to actually run a meta-regression to find out which studies are contributing towards heterogeneity statistics. So that's effectively when the results are quite spread and they're not uniform or following the same direction, you tend to have a widespread of data, which leads to heterogeneity and a basically reduced confidence of where the, the effect may lie. With Revman, you can present the data in many different ways. The most common ones tend to be continuous or dichotomous outcomes. Um, so for dichotomous, it's a simple kind of yes or no. Um, so let's take the example of we're looking at hospital admissions after pulmonary rehab. What we'd be interested in is potentially looking at the amount of people in our pulmonary rehab group who had one or more hospitalizations versus that of the control group. So that often is very poorly presented in uh, research studies and you have to go and request the data from the authors. But you can also do rate ratios as well, which is effectively uh, it's the total number of events um, for, for each group. Then you've got your continuous outcomes, which apply more to your kind of common clinical outcomes, such as walk tests and health-related quality of life measures. So you're looking at the mean differences um, be between groups for that. So I won't go in too much into the meta-analysis because that could be a whole separate podcast in itself, but that's kind of a little whistle-stop tour to uh, meta-analyses and I'd strongly recommend having a look at the Cochrane Handbook in, in detail to find out how you should categorize your data and which approaches you should use for that. I'm sure Arwell will have some stuff potentially to add in relation to the analysis. Yeah, I guess this, this brings back to a point I made earlier where it's really important that within your review team that you have somebody with methodology expertise or somebody who is a statistician, if you like, because there are often, let's say, problems that come across when, with systematic reviews, with with how to approach a certain analysis of, of, of an outcome. And I guess you mentioned the Alex hospital admissions and let's say exacerbations in that case. We will often see exacerbations within manuscripts reported as a continuous measurement where the mean and standard deviation of number of exacerbations per group over, a, let's say, a 12-month period. But of course, exacerbations, hospitalizations are count data. So from a point of view of meta-analysis, we should be treating these outcomes as a dichotomous outcome, which whether it's a how many exacerbations or how many participants have, have had exacerbations during the follow-up period. So they've either had, yes, they've had an exacerbation or they've had no exacerbations, or they could be treated as rates where instead of looking at 
yes or no. We're looking at the total number of exacerbations. And that necessarily wouldn't be completely familiar with somebody without a statistical expertise. So that's something that's always worthwhile thinking about is when you're drafting up your protocol, consult a statistician because they will often have recommendations to how best approach the analysis of the data and the outcomes that you'd expect in your um, to answer your review question. So often now when we think about systematic reviews, we have this meta-analysis, which of course looks at the quantity of the evidence. So we're looking at, let's say, an estimate effect of an intervention. For, from my perspective, a crucial thing of systematic reviews is also to look at the quality of the evidence in the field. Now, when it comes to pulmonary rehabilitation trials, one limitation or let's say component of risk of bias assessment or quality assessment is that of blinding. Blinding of personnel, blinding of participants is you know, nigh on, let's say, possibly, it's going to be completely impossible to really blind somebody from receiving the rehabilitation intervention. Of course, when it comes to a trial or rehabilitation, we can look at blinding outcome assessment. That's something that we should all strive to do. We can, if that's possible within that sort of trial setting. When we look at risk of bias assessments, the good thing is that there are many tools out there that have already been constructed and validated to be able to assess risk of bias or quality of um, trials within a systematic reviews. One which is often referred to from the context of randomized control trials is the risk of bias tool from Cochrane. Now this has been recently updated, so we're now on version two of this particular risk of bias tool. And what I would say is that this new version of the tool is probably going to help the assessment of trials related to rehab, particularly because in the risk of bias one, there was a domain, let's say, of blinding participants and personnel. And often, of course, there is, you can't blind participants and personnel during those studies. So you'd often get studies being ranked as a high risk of bias within those trials of that domain because we can't do it. Now, in the risk, in the version two, of course, what we've got is it goes beyond just thinking about whether that has been done or not, it really considers whether there has been a deviation from the intended interventions in those trials. So I'd encourage you to really look at risk of bias uh, tool from Cochrane, particularly version two, from now onwards, because it will really help trying to overcome some of the issues that have been seen in the past when it comes to assessing um, rehab trials, where reviewers and authors are presented with this challenge, do we just ignore this domain because it's not possible to kind of overcome this issue of study design in rehab trials, or do we just assess every rehab trial to be a high risk of bias of participant personnel? I think as as well, because I've just started using the risk of bias two tool, um, and I've I found kind of what Arwell was alluding to there. The the thing with the risk of bias tools is they they tend to you know grade the study. One um, aspect that you may have seen in previous systematic reviews is the use of grade, which effectively actually looks per outcome. So it does a quality assessment on each individual outcome, whether it be six minute walk tests, St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, HAD score, and so on and so forth. So it encounter, it does have risk of bias included within it, um, but it's kind of in relation to, to the outcome rather than the over, overall study, how that outcome was measured within the studies included in the, the grade assessment of 
a specific outcome. What you also have in there as well is inconsistency. Um, so whether there's heterogeneity in the pooled result, you have imprecision, which is effectively do wide confidence intervals lead to different clinical decision making. You have other risk of bias, such as less applicable really to pulmonary rehab is potentially funding support. Um, so yeah, they're just factors also. I mean, it's not necessarily essential to, to do grade if you're just doing systematic reviews it is is in the context of guidelines but uh, I'm certainly seeing now in the literature that a lot of people are moving towards using grade as well so you, you mentioned imprecision didn't you Alex inconsistency yeah yeah yes yeah also risk of bias whether that's within or or across studies and I guess um, the other one there is also is, is the indirectness of of the evidence that's it. which is essentially to what extent does the evidence that you've included match or relate to the research question that you have. So of course you may well have a range of different comparisons within your systematic review, and as to what extent the evidence is answering the question that you that you want to answer. So that's kind of the main thing: is risk of bias is kind of for the study, individual studies. Grade focuses on the quality of individual pooled outcome assessments. Okay, so the final stage really is kind of actually reporting and interpreting your results. So the first thing is make sure you report in line with the PRISMA guidelines. Um, so this can be found on the um, Equator Network, I believe it is, that has all the reporting guidelines for, for different studies. And also kind of make sure that when you're interpreting your results, so you will get your p-values in there, you'll have your confidence intervals there, things that are very important to, to report. But also make sure that you are reporting about heterogeneity because you know, sometimes we can say there's a significant effect, but if there's large heterogeneity, it needs exploring. So um, sometimes, you know, this is where your subgroup analysis comes in and to try and look at factors which have potentially caused that heterogeneity. Is there something different in design of one study that's led to a very different effect compared to four studies which favor rehabilitation, for example? So it's important you look at them. Sometimes you will have unexplained heterogeneity. So, it's, you know, you, you basically end end up reporting that there was a significant effect with the caveat of there being heterogeneity, which was unexplained. Sometimes it's great with the subgroup analysis because you actually find that, for example, light touch pulmonary rehabilitation programs versus those which were more intense favored a stronger effect in those that were more intense. So and that, that may remove elements of heterogeneity. Um, so then you can actually kind of say, yes, there was the pooled effect was significant, but there was heterogeneity. But when we actually looked at high frequency or more intense program versus light touch, we found that the effect was powerful in those who received a more intense program and heterogeneity was reduced. Whereas, you know, with light touch programs, the effect was less, maybe even not significant. And, you know, there may be a degree of heterogeneity there as well. So I think they're kind of the, the main things um, when reporting is to not kind of slip up on reporting in line with guidelines and making sure that you kind of deal with, with heterogeneity and don't necessarily conflate your results or say things such as, you know, suggested too much and um, probably use terms to more kind of little to no effect. I think I would just say that you've got no excuses, I think, anymore when it comes to reporting because of PRISMA guidelines. I, I think you just, it, it's, it's there for a reason, I think, of course, just to make sure that we are reporting in the best way possible, again, in a transparent manner. And they're, they're there, available, use them. They'll essentially improve the quality of your manuscript if you use them, but they will also make the job of a peer reviewer 
almost easy because, of course, you are telling the reviewer exactly where the relevant information from the Prisma guidelines are in your manuscript. I guess the the other, th- well, I've got so many things to say on this topic, actually, Alex. The, the, when it comes to interpretation of your results, I think one thing I'd emphasize here, and it relates back to the, to the grade approach, is around the precision of your estimates. So don't just take the significance value that you have for your, from your meta-analysis or let's say the overall estimate effect as the, the results you need to be interpreting. You also need to be interpreting that confidence interval from a point of view of how wide is that confidence interval and to what extent does that confidence interval include values which relate to any minimal clinical important differences. So if you have, for example, a estimate of effect which is larger than the minimal clinical important differences for, let's say, the six-minute walk test, and the confidence intervals also are larger, even the smallest value from the confidence intervals is larger than the six-minute walk test, and you can have very high confidence in the result of your meta-analysis. Whereas if you've got an um, outcome such as a six-minute walk test where the confidence interval overlaps a value which wouldn't include a difference which would be clinically important, and that's something that you need to raise in your discussion and raise that as a limitation. And of course, that's then something that you can refer to as an implication of future research. And you shouldn't really underestimate, I guess, the position you are in at the end of your systematic review, because you've essentially collated, if you've done it well, of course, all of the available evidence in the field on that particular topic. And that's why thing I often see not done well in systematic reviews in the literature is really considering the sections on implications for research, implications from practice based upon your findings. And it really needs, I guess, puts you in a position where you really need to consider what are the recommendations for future research from this particular systematic review? Because hopefully you've come from that with a clear sense and idea of what should be done next in that area. Because of course, that's, that's the whole aspect of what you're doing. You're trying to collect all the available evidence which may inform clinical practice on some key changes, but also should inform researchers on, on where the gaps are in this particular research area, but also perhaps where the, the lack of quality is so that further studies can um, improve in the future. And I might just end on in terms of this, emphasizing that this is where systematic reviews are critically important for any new projects, any new PhD studentships, that if you do a systematic review before embarking on that process, you truly are going to have a research design or let's say a series of research studies which are well-informed because they are informed by what's been done prior to those um, studies. So I might just end on on that. Yeah, thanks, Al. I think that point in relation to the minimal clinically important differences is something that's that's very important, um, especially with outcomes such as six-minute walk test, for example, where you know a difference of ten meters can be statistically significant, it's it's important that you know we do actually have a look at the statistics, but then also frame it in the context of uh, uh, clinical importance as well. So, uh, so yeah, that, thank thank you for that. So that kind of brings us to uh, a close for this this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Um, it's been a very much a, a brief kind of overview of uh, systematic reviews. Um, myself and Arwell are actually very 
very invested in doing uh, systematic reviews in the field of pulmonary rehabilitation. So um, I'm sure we'd be kind of happy to, to be approached um, about anyone who's got any questions in this area, especially following this, this podcast. We hope, you know, that people have found it useful if they're about to bar- embark on a systematic review. It'd be uh, fantastic because we find them great sources of information. They're, they tend to often be highly cited documents as well because they basically bring together all the evidence and help inform future research. So really, that's kind of everything for, for us. So I want to just take this opportunity to thank Arwell um, for, for his time today, for sharing his expertise with us. And we, we hope you enjoyed the, the podcast. And um, like I say, if you have any queries in relation to systematic reviews, definitely go and have a look at the freely available Cochrane handbook online. I'll try and post um, a link in the summary as well for that. So uh, thank you for listening and have a good day.